most of the time was your pool. It was all the schemes that were in the book. But what wow. happened in most what happened in most tournaments, and it was an interesting interesting dilemma to be put in, was throughout the the duration of the tournament, you were only allowed to take each scheme once. Huh. So you had to pick and choose depending on who your opponent was, what scheme you were gonna like, when you were gonna play the easy schemes, and when you were gonna play the harder to score schemes. Howdy friends, Craig here. We got a treat for you today. We have got two guests that have played every edition of Weird Games' Malifaux. Malifaux is currently in its third edition. I know a lot of you play it. I also know some of you have never played second edition or first edition or even first and a half. I think you're going to be fascinated how mechanically a lot of Malifaux hasn't changed, how some key parts of Malifaux did change. I found it particularly interesting to see how they handled schemes and strats in each of these editions, especially in organized play in first edition. Sit back, let's blow the dust off the history of the mechanics of Malifaux. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. My guests today are Andrew Lubick and Mark Williams. Today we're going to discuss the history of Malifaux, specifically the mechanics and how the mechanics have changed across all of the editions from first to first and a half to second to now third edition. Now, Mark is a henchman out of Queensland, Australia. He's been playing Malifaux really since the very beginning. Um, he just recently, while we're getting ready for the podcast, was showing me his shelves of beautifully painted models. Um, it's, I don't know, it was like five shelves worth, which was impressive. Um, so I thought Mark would be a perfect person to really kind of delve into this. So Mark, welcome to the third floor. Hey, Craig, good to be here. Shout out to the third floor warriors. <laughs> so Mark, you're going to get the standard question, my friend. Um, there was a day that you knew nothing about tabletop gaming, had never seen a miniature before. Then there was the day after. So how did you find out about tabletop gaming? Well, I uh, had actually had a mate at work who was very much into 40K and back around sort of fourth, third, I got into 40K Warhammer, as most people did, played for a good couple of years on that, uh, all the way through fourth ed, through fifth ed, started running some tournaments and was running tournaments in Australia um, that were focused around fun and need I say drinking in that I had one that uh, had a tournament called Stout Hammer, um, nice. which was focused very much around drinking and having fun with wargaming as opposed to doing what people do, which is, you know, netlist and all that sort of stuff. Uh, once six dead rolled around, I, I basically went, mm, look, this is kind of not for me anymore. And a mate of mine introduced me to Malifaux and I fell hard. I fell in love hard and, Pretty much from then, it's been my only exclusive game, apart from when Third Ed uh, was in beta testing, I also started dipping my toes into the other side. Oh, nice. Now, I'd be curious, what was it in the jump from fifth to sixth that kind of turned you off? It just, 
through fifth ed and in, and into sixth ed, it just it just sort of started looking more and more. I I just didn't like the feel of the game anymore. It was it was it was the usual um, the hard push, and every new book had all the new sh- shiny toys. If you couldn't do that, you couldn't yeah. play the game. And I just went, look, this is just not for me anymore. I got introduced to Malifaux and fell in love with it. Really. Yeah, I would imagine the addition change kind of gave you a clean break, right? A nice, a nice place to kind of put the bookend on one game and start a new one. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely did. And I went along to my first event with I, my first master was Lilith. Um, I went along to my first event, uh, which was a large, it's part of a large convention in Australia that we have in January each year called CanCon. Um, while I was there, because I'd been I'd been listening to the old the old what was it the Ethervox podcast I think it was um, nice and they had uh, Adrian uh, Scott Rathnard from the forums Professor Pink himself uh, and he was doing some recording for Ethervox there I actually bought my second crew being a Ramos crew off him after he absolutely spanked me with Zerator um, <laughs> and yeah then I just stepped on from there and moved my way through. And now I've got the collection where I'm only missing four or five of the masters at the moment. Very, very cool. So Andrew is actually a local here in North Carolina. Um, I've known Andrew. I mean, God, it's gotta be three, four years now, easily Andrew. Um, And uh, Andrew has, um, has cheated on Malifaux. He um, has played Malifaux hardcore. Then he vanishes from the scene. Then he comes back and then he vanishes again. So, um, Andrew, I don't think you've actually physically been up here on the third floor, but um, I feel like spiritually you have. So welcome back to the third floor. Well, it's great to be back, Craig. Um, I've always loved the work that you guys do. I'll listen to it when I can. Um, so just really a pleasure. Well, I appreciate it, man. And um, I'm a big fan of your podcast, even though it's kind of dormant right now. Um, it was called Spend Your Focus. You did it with a buddy of mine named Chris Blue. Um, and I really hope that uh, we can get you guys back on the mic again because I miss it. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, get some new stuff out. Uh, I just happen to be a really bad editor. And uh, <laughs> I think I really need to get the uh, better half of the pair uh, more involved and just uh, encouraging me to just throw the stuff out there without trying to tinker with it too much. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like painting models, Andrew, to be honest with you. I mean, if you go back and listen to old episodes of tabletop talk and listen to it now, I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, in a year and a half and, you know, it's just like painting a model. At some point you got to stop painting and say that model's done and I'm going to move to the next one. The next one I paint is going to be better than the previous one. And, you know, Producing a podcast is by far the worst part of the process. You know, finding guests, having recording and talking, you know, talking game stuff is fun and the editing's boring, but um, you get a system down. So um, plus I know a guy if you need any help, I can uh, give you some advice. Um, so Andrew, I actually don't know the answer to this question, which is, you know, how, how did you find Malifone? How did you find tabletop gaming? All right. So tabletop gaming, um, I started like a lot of people did with uh, 40K. I had uh, two uh, friends that were uh, really into 40k uh, we didn't uh, they didn't play in tournaments or anything really uh it was uh ryan and uh chris yep. and um i wanted to get involved in it it seemed pretty cool it was right in uh fifth edition 40k so i bought necrons because they're the best and uh, i played third edition necrons in fifth edition for a while just over at a buddy's house uh how um we 
uh, played with just a bunch of local groups, usually at their house. But uh, right before Sixth Edition, uh, right around 2000, I think nine or so after Malifaux had launched, uh, Ryan, uh, I like to think of him as my uh, gaming drug dealer, <laughs> and uh, and that's uh, when when uh, he finds interest in a new game, he'd be like, "Hey, you want to play this?" And he'd get just enough of us in the group to buy in on it. So I'd, I'd usually be the second or third one. And, and Malifaux um, was the first of many games that we would go down uh, that I jumped in on. Uh, felt, uh, I was debating between Ortegas and uh, Rasputina. I, I bought the Ortegas, had some remorse. And then uh, my brother's like, okay, um, let's just, get this to another friend and then he gave me uh, Rasputina and then that's nice. uh, who I mostly played with um, the in and out part of uh, Malifaux. A lot of that came about from uh, Ryan as well, where <laughs> it'd be new game um, like infinity or guild ball or something. And we'd get into that. Um, so it, really depended on what the interest of the group I played with most of the time was into at the time for how much I played Malifaux. Malifaux is still my favorite out of them because I think it's the most um, rewarding from a strategic level, uh, has just the right amount of itch to scratch uh, for between chance and skill. Yeah, no, I agree. I'd be curious to know, Mark, did you ever get into Guild Ball or try Guild Ball? Never tried Guild Ball myself. Um, I played maybe a couple of games of the old Blood Bowl. Never really tried Guild yep. Ball. Um, yeah, I basically I went I went forty k, and then to Malifaux, I almost got into uh, got into the, that well known cartoon of um, X Wing, but mm -hmm. saw, saw the light and went, no, that's not a good idea, and just stuck with Malifaux really. Yeah, first edition X Wing was a little rough. Um, second edition X Wing isn't bad. Um, and and um, the kind of the buy in point now isn't too bad if you're going to want to play it competitively. It's expensive, just like any game is uh, expensive. The one I keep getting tempted with is Armada. Um, I had Jamie Perkins on the show, and he would not shut up about that game. Um, he's a huge fan of the game. Um, and uh, he considers it a crime that more people don't play it. So I I'm tempted by that. I also, you know, just picked up Legion. So I've got to give that a try when people can actually hang out together again. Um, but Gander, have as someone who did play Guild Ball, what did you think about the announcement? Um, by the way, we're recording this here in uh, early August. So I think it was last week that the announcement of Guild Ball shutting down came out. Um, I thought, Hey, this is a great time to pick up some stuff that I have uh, been missing, um, and get reacquainted with the game after a bit. Um, I am glad that they said that they might revisit it to release the minor guilds because I play all three of the guilds that they never released the minor guild oh, for brewers, masons and blacksmiths. So, um, <laughs> it was kind of like, Oh, I'll never see that stuff. Yeah. Uh, just yet. So, um, a little sad about it though yeah i um it's been interesting because one uh, one i give him credit for saying look we're gonna stop um i mean that's that, that's a bold move um as a company you know you still have players they could have um i think uh drawn it out and just let it die on its own and they didn't so i i admire him for that uh a lot of the noise um has been you know that uh 
Steamforge was bla- blaming the players and blame blaming the community and stuff like that. And I've gone back and read their announcement a couple times, and and I must be reading a different announcement than other people are. Or maybe I'm out of the loop and there's a context I'm not aware of because um, I didn't feel that they were blaming players at all. I think if anything, they were kind of blaming themselves for creating a game that um, you know they couldn't quite couldn't design around anymore um but uh it um the 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 reaction to it i thought was very 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 interesting and i've actually got another one of the designers for guild ball coming on the show here soon too um so i'll be anxious to talk to him and get his thoughts but we're not here as a guild ball podcast or a guild ball episode so let's talk a little bit about malifaux so now most of uh the people listening here Probably started in second edition. That's when I started. Was early second edition. Um, I actually was from Guild Ball. Uh, it was through Guild Ball that I found Malifaux. Um, but there was two editions before that. You had first edition, and then uh, 1.5 that came out before second. Um, I know some of you um, third edition is really your first introduction because, from what I'm understanding and uh, the people that I'm talking to, um, there's a lot of people that uh, just knew about Malifaux and uh, it was not until third that they actually gave it a try. Um, So what we're going to do is um, we're going to talk to Mark and Andrew who have played all of the editions. And I want to kind of learn about their thoughts on the progression from where it started um, at the very, very beginning um, all the way up to what they, where they think it is now. And specifically, I want to focus mostly on the mechanical changes. How different is first edition from third edition and what were the stepping stones that led us from the first to the second. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about first edition Malifaux. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, are you always borrowing mats to play on? Is your mat old, boring, and ratty? Is your mat missing overlays for objectives and deployment? Yes. Well, that's not a problem on the third floor because we play almost exclusively on Mats by Mars. Their mats are glare-free, scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, and lighter than neoprene. Tons of professional and detailed designs are available with free overlays. Their mats are the best in the business. Support us and get a 10% discount on your next order. Use our promo code in the show notes for a 10% discount on your entire order. When you order, ask for the third floor logo to be put on the mat for free. That makes the best mats in the business a little bit better. Do not forget to use our promo code to get that 10% discount. All the details are in the show notes. Floorheads play their games on Mats by Mars. So this is before my time. Um, in fact, um, I didn't really hear. I think I started hearing noises about Malifaux around first and a half edition. Um, and then there was some radio silence. And it wasn't until second edition that uh, I got back onto my radar when I'd left 40K and started playing Guild Ball. Um, so, Mark, let's go all the way back in time. Um, and uh, initially, from my understanding, uh, Weird what didn't start off as a gaming company. Is that right? Yeah, no, they were uh, more a miniatures company. They just were making, trying to make cool miniatures. I think some of the early edition miniatures that attracted me to the game were things such as the original Teddy, the original Baby Cade, the original Candy, um, and all those sort of miniatures. And it was from those miniatures, miniatures there, they 
basically needed to come up with a game. Like they used to just put out miniatures. They came up with a game. They needed something to mash all those um, all those genres together, which we all sort of look – when you first talk to someone, we've all had it. You talk to someone, you tell them it's a Victorian steampunk gothic western horror, and they just go – what and you're like it doesn't yeah. sound like it'll work but it does now it's it's great and that's that was my reaction i thought it was super gimmicky uh the theme itself um turns out um and it, it sounds like they kind of backed into it a little bit they were able to kind of build a world around this eclectic thing andrew did you have any awareness of them as a miniature company or did they get on your radar as, as a gaming company first uh they were on my radar as a gaming company i only found out about uh the um they were a miniature company after the fact i mean it was shortly after the fact it's like where did these guys come from sort of deal but it was um first and foremost hey here's this new game here's some cool new models and stuff uh it uses a deck of cards not dice so it's um that's how i got introduced to weird as got it so mark obviously the cards were there from the very beginning right what did you what do you think were really some of the key um the key things about first edition? Um what what defined it as a game in your mind? I think the first and foremost is as we just said, the first and foremost thing, like everyone everyone who has started in a in a miniatures game has had that game where they've rolled nothing but ones. And being able to put away the dice and pick up a fate deck and say, look, yes, there's still a randomly generated luck, but it's somewhat predictable luck. Um, and then also the unique advantage of having that cheating hand, um, the hand of cards, it really put in like this whole new spin on a war game on how are we going to go and move all these miniatures around without rolling dice. And that was the thing that drew me in. As soon as I realized I didn't need dice, my online handle for a lot of time um, and also my gaming my email address and all that stuff was given to me by a friend of mine and my nickname was Vanilla Dice um, <laughs> because I have a haircut. I ha- have a haircut that's very similar to Vanilla Ice um, and I was very superstitious about dice. I used to sleep with dice under my pillow the night before a, a tournament <laughs> to try and put luck into them. I've got that many different colors of dice. Oh, um, that's funny. And I was very – that being able to put them aside and go, hey, look, I'm going to use a deck of cards um, – was something that really drew me in. So I'd be curious, Andrew, um, you know, l- l- let's go back to when you first played first edition and you, and you got maybe your first game or two into Malifaux. W- what sank for you, sank in for you, especially compared to where you're coming from in 40 K. Um, I think the biggest thing is still my favorite thing about Malifaux is that you had um, schemes and strategies that were uh, secret information or they were known information that you could uh, counterplay around, and both players might not be playing the exact same kind of game. Um, even more so in first, because uh, originally uh, you didn't share the strategy. You had flipped for, t- um, they would flip for a strategy, you would flip for a strategy, and then you would just pick from um, lists of schemes that were always available. So wait a minute. So if you and I are playing each other in first edition, I might be playing strategy A and you'd be playing strategy B. Uh, that is a hundred percent correct. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, did that work? Um, it did for the most part. Uh, it's one of the things I am definitely glad when we talk about things that changed. 
um, that they went to shared. It's one of the things that when um, I guess we, we get to 1.5, that's one of the changes they kind of made. And when they started to do tournament rules, they did more uh, shared strategies. But right out the get-go, um, it was you're playing whatever you flipped and I'm playing whatever I flipped for strategy. And if so, you would know, would your opponent know what strategy you flipped or was that secret? Uh, strategies were public information gotcha. to both players. Um, schemes uh, were still hidden, but it was uh, always the same list. Um, there were faction specific ones that you wow. uh, each faction had. There were master specific ones that um, each master had that you would pick from. Um, and unfortunately, certain ones were better than others. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, it's one of those things that when you first hear stuff like that, you're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, but it also sounds complicated, right? It also sounds um, like an, and maybe an additional layer. Um, Mark, what was your feeling about uh, kind of the, the, the concept of having a, a non-shared strategy? Yeah, it was, it worked. And as, uh, as Andrew was saying, it, it worked at times, but I'm much happier that we have a joint strategy now. And building on from what he just said, the um, another interesting part of it, obviously, being the schemes. And yeah, there was some faction and master-specific schemes, which made it harder for some things. But um, a lot of the schemes, like uh, when they went into second ed, they changed it. But in first ed, there was actually, when you uh, pick schemes, um, a lot of them had essentially an, an extra point if you announced it at the start of the game. So you didn't always have hidden schemes. At the start of the game, you could be like, I'm going to be playing this scheme. So your opponent knew that they had to try and counter that. But if you got it off, you got an extra point. <laughs> that's a, that's kind of a cocky move, right? Like, I am so much better than you that I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and you can't stop me still. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. Un- unfortunately, in some of those cases, um, with certain combinations, it was exactly that. You just yeah. couldn't um, stop it. I, I think uh, the biggest... Um, scheme that I always kind of had some uh, beef with was uh, bodyguard um, on your master. Uh, there was just certain leaders with uh, an ability called uh, slow to die that just made them pretty much unkillable. I'm really glad slow to die is uh, not in the game anymore, as well as uh, just one AP for the healing flip on Soulstone. Well, let's go through that. So what was bodyguard? Do you remember? So bodyguard was um, if your master is alive at the end of the game, um, you scored a point. And if you told your opponent that you had it, um, you would uh, it would be worth two points at the end. Got it. Um, and then it was actually a negative point if um, they were uh, killed before turn five. So you would Interesting. be playing down in the hole. So it could be. Um, detrimental to you if you had it and didn't have it but um for somebody like uh colette who had uh slow to die and um really good defensive abilities no no change there from additions uh <laughs> uh slow to die going into that side was uh when you were reduced to zero wounds you you got an action right then and there and if you suddenly had not zero wounds you've lived interesting so for a model with you soul stone there used to be one action make a heal healing flip uh one two three so any leader with slow to die and um use soul stone 
was pretty much free bodyguard points as long as you had soul stones and right then, um going back to colette who was somebody i played against um a lot in my group uh she had a free soul stone each turn uh, <laughs> that she could use that didn't count against the crew and then she could also take a zero to pitch two cards and gain two soul stones so one thing that obviously didn't change between editions is that Colette's a bunch of garbage, uh, broken garbage, right? That um, Yeah, I didn't play her at all in first. Um, I, I just couldn't get behind the whole uh, showgirl aesthetic, even though I was a dirty arcanist. They weren't as dirty back then, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, then um, second edition, I don't think she was that bad yeah no she definitely was uh she definitely uh was one of the beneficiaries of third edition i think um which is good because i think i think i like her style of play being in the game um so mark um can you kind of give us an overview like out of the gate how many factions did we have how many masters were we looking at oh well i actually made a list here um so there was we had five factions so you had your your original four being guild arcanist neverborn and reses the four suits of the deck and then you also had your outcast tipped uh, on the uh, on attacked onto that each uh faction had three masters so i'll quickly run through the list guild had sonia Pedita, and lady justice arcanists had ramos raspi and marcus neverborn had the Lilith, Zerida, and Pandora. Rezes had McMorney, Nicodem, and Seamus. And then Outcasts had Vix, Levy, and Summerteeth Jones. Nice. Oh, Summer. Oh, I did not realize that. So, yeah, originally Summer, and then later on, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Ma? Pedita's. No, Pedita's. Oh, Ophelia. Um, Ophelia. Yeah, originally, originally Summer and Ophelia were... Um, in outcasts interesting interesting i think i kind of remember that and then that's when they later spun off gremlins from there right um and i, I kind of remember remember that and that's why you always hear the joke that uh they're not a real faction because they weren't part of the uh original group um so andrew it, as you go back and you think about it um in your mind what worked really well in first edition and and i don't mean compared to the other editions i'm i'm thinking more compared to the overall gaming landscape so you know first edition attracted players um it it started you know malifaux becoming one of the uh bigger of the secondary game companies out there um what 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 led to its success in your mind um i think that the whole ability to control your own uh fate without dice uh using cards being able to sort of predict and make uh educated assumptions about your success rates uh was really strong for it i think that uh despite some of the rough edges around schemes and strategies uh that ability to have uh differences between the two players and then a more reactive play rather than i'm gonna just move to this one point and stand on here for all game long with this unit was really strong for it. And, and I think the, um, the, it was a, uh, the fact that it was skirmish level. Yeah. Uh, you didn't need too many models to enjoy a good game. Uh, really helped out with it. Um, had a, a pretty solid um, terrain rules at the time with defining everything, uh, how it worked. Um, so I think those things worked really well for it. 
Yeah, and it's it's easy to forget how innovative everything you just talked about was at the time. Um, it um, I don't think you can overstate uh, how influential uh, Malifaux has been in the overall landscape. I, it was there at the beginning of skirmish games, g- gaining prominence. Um, the concept of variable pools and variable wind conditions was something that you just didn't see. Um, until Malfo really introduced it. Um, it doesn't mean that they were the first, but they were the first to put it out um, in, a, in a larger way um, and get it more widespread. Um, and you've seen the influence on it. Um, every game, Mark, um, as it reaches the end of its edition, it starts to show some of its warts. Um, in your mind, as, as first edition started to kind of wrap up and before 1.5 came out, what were some of the problems that people were finding in first edition? Uh, well, in, in first edition, um, there was the usual thing of some masters were starting at a little bit that like there was a little bit of power creep with some masters. I mean, there was uh, the main ones I can remember. And uh, point to note is like 1.5 itself wasn't so much really an addition as it was essentially an errata of the rules. And it basically took... It took this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, the second book and the first book and basically put them together um, and it added, it added in like the schemes because the second book brought out an extra master for each faction. Yeah, so 1.5 is exactly what, like you were saying, Mark. It pretty much just put those into the core rules. Um, it took the, um, the master-specific schemes and stuff from the second book, put them into the main rules so that way anybody could have them it actually took a couple of the models from the second book like the riders um and put them into the main rules rather than um just leaving them in the secondary book and is that is one and a half when we first saw the non-shared strategy or or the or these shared strategy i mean uh so uh rising powers the second book is where they had the shared strategies and then um, actually, the Gaining Grounds uh, 2011, um, the very, I think it's the first Gaining Grounds, had the um, shared strategies, the recommendations for uh, tournaments. Um, you, TOS could still do the um, – each player had different strategies. And Mark can probably speak more to that as um, a henchman, somebody who actually uh, went to tournaments because mine was just very casual um, playing of Malifaux. But um, that was all there, so they just kind of codified it when they moved to 1.5. Is is that your take, Mark, on first on 1.5? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the um and the way that tournaments and that sort of ran back then, it was like as we said, there was um a set of schemes in the book, um and there was master and faction specific schemes, um and that was essentially most of the time was your pool. It was all the schemes that were in the book, but what wow. happened in most what happened in most tournaments and it was an interesting interesting dilemma to be put in was throughout the the duration of the tournament you were only allowed to take each scheme once huh. so you had to pick and choose depending on who your opponent was what scheme you were going to like when you were going to play the easy schemes and when you were going to play the harder to score schemes that's interesting that reminds me a little bit of uh, like the iron scorpius right where that concept of having a format where you can only take one master 
uh, each round and you have to go through that same decision making. It's interesting that there was a version of that kind of codified in the rules itself. So now we're in uh, 1.5. It sounds like they've uh, kind of brought brought some stuff together, uh, started the gaining grounds process. Is there anything um, in your mind, uh, Andrew, that truly defined 1.5 beyond that or is that pretty much sum it up? So for 1.5, I think it really is the fact that they started to move more towards a shared strategy than um, individual strategies. Um, I do think that there were a um, there was one really big errata event that occurred um, for a few masters, uh, namely um, Hamlin and uh, Dreamer uh, got hit pretty hard because uh, they had some really uh, disgusting stuff uh, that put uh that put whatever we had known now absolutely to shame like a dreamer could get in your uh, deployment zone and then uh, you activate a model and then it just dies and it becomes an elf that that seems good yeah it it was it was really good (laughs) yeah and point point to note he could get into your deployment zone on turn one because he'd move and then uh lord chompy bits it unbury then lord chompy bits it activate and then bury and then bring out dreamer and next thing you know you've got lord chompy bits in in your deployment zone like turn one and you're like what just happened wow that's crazy did you think was there was there some serious balance issues towards the end of 1.5 mark uh, yeah, there was the main. I think the main culprits uh, on the the hard, the uh, more powerful masters at the time were um, Hamlin, definitely with his rat engine that was like infinite rats. Oh. Um, and also there was Pandora, who literally through through pushes from people failing willpower drills, she could do laps of the ta- of the table easily. Interesting. Um- so I, now let's go back to that real quick, and we're gonna we're gonna take a break before we talk about M two E. But I want to talk about the at the end of one point five. Um, where was the game at that point? Did you feel that? Um, and I'm trying to figure out what the transition was like. Did Weird say, "Look, we're, we've got a new edition coming out"? Um, at, at what point did you guys know that that the Weird was going to change the game? I can't remember exactly when, but I know they did release it. I think Andrew would probably be able to say say dates and years. I can't remember when, but I do. One of the things that I do remember from 1.5 as well that was um, probably one of my bugbears of the game was actually the stat cards. The stat cards were a, a flip flip book, flip book style. Uh-huh. Um, it was basically like think the second ed cards, but in a flip book sort of open up type thing that there was no real sleeves or anything. I laminated all mine. Wow. I think that's what most people did is they laminated all their flipbook cards so they could write on them. And then you had like bundles of cards with elastic bands around them to play the game. Yeah, I, I will second that lamination thing. I um, had like an index card box that I would put them in. And I just happened to have a friend who was a teacher at a school that uh, had access to a laminator to just it's like hey can i give you a bunch of cards and go laminate them for him so andrew do you remember like was when they announced second edition was it a surprise or did everybody kind of know it was coming or um they did know it was coming it was right after the uh last book which i believe was storm of shadows uh looking at my notes here um where they did uh 10 thunders uh 
became a faction. Got it. And they released the first plastic kits for Matt Alpha. All the uh, Ten Thunders faction was plastic kits. And then um, shortly after that, they started open, uh, having um, beta testing for uh, second edition. I think uh, when we're talking about like a break point for things, the main issue was that they were going to do it in uh, waves. So the only masters that would be first um, playable in second edition was pretty much the first three for each faction. So people that got into the game um, that were uh, maybe a later master, like a book two or one of the 10 thunders ones suddenly had no rules to play their models for a long time yeah and, I, and when we get back from the break i want to talk about that transition because it's my understanding the transition from one to two uh was bumpy um so uh, we'll get into that so let's take a break uh real quick and let's talk about the birth of a uh, second edition uh some of the bumps uh that weird had in that process um which we've hinted at and uh some of the successes as well so we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of slash talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So second edition um, is, of course, where I started playing and um, I missed the transition. Um, but I heard stories because a lot of the group that uh, I ended up falling in with and I'm still with here in North Carolina that um fostered my love of the game you know has talked about it um and every once in a while you hear one uh, some old dude like me uh bitch about it on a, a awp um when people you know start complaining about third edition they're like yeah you weren't here for second edition third edition was a smooth sale um so it, uh, mark you went through it so 
you know, we talked about a little bit before the break, but um, let, let's kind of reiterate how how did they roll out uh, second edition? Okay, so yeah, as we went through uh, before the break, uh, it's it's kind of interesting that um, everything sort of happened again for me on the second to third, but from the first to second transition, yeah, they there was the first time I'd ever been in a game that didn't open beta test, um, so. F- and they told us that they were only releasing those um, that it was like three, three of the original masters per faction. So if you'd got into the game with like some of the 10 thunder masters or something like that in first ed, you essentially for that first year of second edition, wow. you didn't have a master unless you got in, unless you got something else. Cause they only released, they released it in two waves and the two wa- waves, they did open beta testing for both. And there was a lot of people. I remember listening to podcasts back then and there was some influential podcasters back then who quit the game they were like i'm not going from from first to second because they thought the rules were dumbed down believe it or not they thought it was and then you heard the same thing going from second to third people like ah they've just simplified the game there's no tactical uh depth in it anymore but here we are still (laughs) yeah well and and that's a common fallacy though mark where where you see people that think that complicated means deep um and i think that um it has been proven over and over and over again that it, that it's just not the case that some at some point complicated is just freaking complicated. Um, that's my exactly. issue with infinity. Um, I, th- I think fit infinity is complicated for the sake of being complicated. Um, it's something that I like about uh, Marvel crisis protocol. Marvel crisis protocol is an incredibly simple game, but is surprisingly deep. And I think Malfoy is a really nice sweet spot. Um, and I got to tell you, um, you know, second edition, um, as a new player, I found it, especially coming from 40K, um, I found it much more of a streamlined game than 40K ever was, um, and, and especially compared to fantasy, for crying out loud. Um, but I came from Guild Ball, so it wasn't nearly as tight and as simple as Guild Ball was. Um, so it really kind of scratched a neat itch for me. And then, you know, yeah, I was there from, from second to third and you're right, Mark, that's what everybody was saying is all, all they're doing is dumbing down the rules. It's going to ruin the game. I will, I will argue over and over and over again, that three is deeper. Three is a deeper, better game than two. And part of the reason is, is because the rules don't get in our way nearly as much as they used to. And we can actually play this, play the stupid game. But let's go back here uh, to second edition. So some bumps there. You had a period of time, uh, Andrew, where, you know, people couldn't play, which just sucks. And I'm sure that lost players. Um, in your mind, you kind of remember when you started feeling like second edition caught steam? Because I know really as a player base, that's where um Malifaux made its mark was uh second edition from my understanding had a much larger player base than one so um it's hard for me to say exactly when second edition uh started to make strides because i um i had some passion even at the beginning of second like hey these rules are good like when i was playing in the uh, beta test with my brother a lot and it's like hey guys this game is actually going to be more awesome uh they did some really neat things. They introduced this new thing called ski markers that really just changed. Oh, wow. The there wasn't ski whole... markers in one. No, there was not. So oh, a lot of it was either, uh, it was either terrain or positioned based or uh, killing models in specific ways in one. So when they a- added ski markers, it's like, it just kind of blew my mind at the time. Like, wow, this is, why didn't we have this before? It's a, um, it bothered a few people that it wasn't. It was so kind of abstract, right? What ski marker is, 
but mechanically from a gameplay perspective really smooths out a lot of stuff uh unfortunately um once again my uh my uh plastic dealer at the time was uh, getting me in <laughs> getting me into metal uh for infinity and they had some really cool models so um with only about two people in my group that had uh too much interest we ended up kind of going in that direction and i didn't get pulled back into infinity until uh chris came to me and said hey have did you know that malfo 2 is out and it's like yeah i've been telling you for years man <laughs> and and then uh, he um we we played at a local gaming store and then he started to introduce me to the guys and i was like wow north carolina has a whole crap ton of malifaux players that i didn't even know about yeah yeah we've always i mean as far as i know have always had a pretty good scene here in north carolina and we benefit from the fact that there's uh really two maybe three to four nodes right you've got the the raleigh triangle area you've got the greensboro area there's always been a semi-active uh beach uh east coast and then of course the charlotte mecklenburg area um so mark it sounds to me like i didn't realize the scheme marker thing didn't come until second edition and it you know I I don't think Malifaux gets enough credit for being as innovative as it was and as influential as it has been, because, you know, you think about the concept of the ski marker now um, doesn't seem that crazy. And it's not just in Malifaux, but you're seeing similar mechanics popping up in other games um, where they've kind of lifted the idea. Um, Did you, did the ski markers blow your mind as much as they blew Andrew's mind? Oh, very much so. I remember like when they said you can, put scheme markers down like i remember just playing games where i'm like i'm just gonna put a scheme marker here because i can right um, the other mechanic that they also brought in that they didn't they didn't really do in first ed but the um other interesting part was um the thing that then became something that disappeared a little bit more was upgrades yeah um and being able to customize your master like things like markers had very distinctive play styles depending on what upgrades you chose. Um, and that was another interesting mechanic that they brought in um, in second ed that made me go, oh, wow, I can, I can change, I can change the way I play the same model just by putting these upgrades and stuff on it. But scheme markers definitely was something that I was like, oh, I can just put a scheme marker here. And then there was that guessing game. And as I said, they also made it that you couldn't, um, that all schemes were hidden as opposed to having that, that sort of bravado game at the start of, Oh, I'm playing this scheme um, in first ed in second ed, it, they disappeared. And they also brought in the uh, scheme pools, uh, which you could do. And that was, yeah, there was some definite innovations in there that uh, basically gave it that depth that everyone knew from sec uh, that nowadays from second ed. Yeah. And for those of you that have never played second edition, the way that, you know, you have upgrades, of course, in third, but they're very different. So back then in second edition, each master had a pool of upgrades that they could that they could bring in and they would pay for them and they would add them, you know, to the uh, 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 to the master and it would extend it out. And it's my understanding, Andrew, that really what they did in a lot of ways is they took stuff off the base card of the master and first edition and kind of spun it off into um, upgrades into second edition, simplifying the kind of the base master card. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So in first edition, because they were um, basically tarot sized folded in half uh, with just walls of text, they just moved a lot of that text to 
um, upgrades. So if you didn't necessarily want that ability or didn't think it was necessarily useful, you didn't have to have it. Or if you wanted to specialize in the specific abilities or play in different ways, like Mark was saying, uh, you could do that as well and get entirely different experiences with the same models. So Mark, as you now imagine yourself back knee deep into second edition, um, was there anything that you missed from first edition? Was there something that you thought was good about first edition that you lost or something that maybe, you know, just nostalgically you just thought was really kind of cool maybe about first edition that, that you really missed as you were playing second? It was actually some of the strategies I remember um, from first ed. And also it was good to see um, like in first ed it happened, but things like uh, Hamlin and Masaki and Jack Daw used to be minions in first ed. Oh, wow. Um, and, seeing, and seeing them push their way through. I remember back in first ed, if you took Jack Daw, he was immune to a whole heap of stuff. He only had, and he had, he had no wounds. Um, as long as you had cards in hand, you could discard a card. Uh, from an attack to essentially negate the attack. And he was actually a strategy himself in that uh, if you kept Jackdaw alive in first ed, you scored an extra VP on top of <laughs> your um, normal VP. But if your opponent killed him, they scored a VP. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, it was um, some, of the, some of the strats being uh, that they brought back in later on in the gaining grounds was uh, like supply wagons. Um, and also, uh, there was one called treasure hunt where you had to run to the center of the board, pick up a treasure token and bring it back to your deployment zone. Oh, that's interesting. Almost like a, like a pseudo center capture the flag type, type deal. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, Mark, while you're now knee deep in second edition, what didn't you miss? What did you end up falling in love with in second edition? Um, I fell in love with the the um, the triggers being baked into all the uh, all the attacks. What used to happen in uh, what used to happen in first ed was you'd have a combat value or a cast value and all that sort of stuff on your card, and then there was essentially just a section on the card called triggers, and they either went off combat or casting or whatever. And then you also had a section for spells. Um, oh Jesus! And the trick and the triggers were. The triggers were essentially universal to whatever attack, whether it be combat or casting, that you were that you were using. And then when they put those triggers specific to every attack, and every attack had a different value um, on on all the on all the actions that you could take, that was a um, yeah, that was something that I actually really was quite happy for. And also the layout of the cards from the old, as Andrew said, folded tarot to the, the nice, essentially normal card size was, and the simplification in it, but it still had that depth was something that, yeah, made me go, that was, that was awesome. How about for you, Andrew? What, what uh, Chris, Chris brings you back into second edition. You finally find some people to play. Um, was there anything you missed and what did you love? Uh, missed from second or missed from uh, first? Missed from first. So as you were playing second. Okay. So I missed uh, one thing that was, uh, also I, I uh, didn't miss at the same time was how swinging soul stones were because uh, when you used it to add a card, oh, I'm sorry, when you used it for the uh, extra card in second, it's um, uh, you add a plus flip and you choose. In first, it is you add the card. So <laughs> if it would be like, I flip 12, 13, um, defend against 30. Oh, geez. 
Um, <laughs> and for it was it was better for Masters in the sense that if they flip Black Joker, you could still add a card to the Joker and not be entirely um, screwed by it. So. So is that was that so that was true of positive flips? Was that tr- true of cheating as well? So was cheating was an additive action versus uh, a replace action? No, it's it actually was just the use soulstone was oh, okay. add a card. So anything that had use soulstone could add a card in first edition. So yeah, I have very fond memories of playing Leviticus in first ed where I'd be like, okay, so I flip a card, oh, it's a two, I cheat in a 13, I burn a stone, I flip another card and it's another 13 and it's like, okay, so my total's my total's like 32. Um, you can't use Soulstone, so yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that I would imagine that made just Soulstone users just ultra powerful against non-users, right? Absolutely. So. Yeah. Um, now, other things that happened in second edition, we got, uh, obviously, eventually the 10 Thunders were brought into the edition um, as part of that second wave. And then uh, Gremlins were released um, and kind of spun off into their own faction as well. Um, how was that received? Do you remember, Mark? <laughs> Apart from everyone saying that they're not a real faction. Yeah, which um, is a joke you still hear. Yeah, and it was, no, Gremlins... Uh, the Gremlins coming in as another faction and then 10 Thunders being the other faction. It was, that was, it was good to see them finally. And it, it generated a lot of hype because going like doing that first wave, they needed, you needed at least, they needed to have product. Like they're, they're a miniatures company. They still needed to have product. So being able to release um, a sec, the, in the first wave, um, some new masters, same, same with, Maybe to a detriment because it was maybe rushed a little bit, but Tara being a new master in second ed um, that came out in the first wave, uh, it generated some interest and people wanted to play those those new things. Right, right. Um, so, Andrew, as we got towards the end of second edition, um, what did you think were some of the uh, uh, warts that we saw? What were some of the things that kind of um, showed uh, second edition might need might needed uh, some more than just an errata. Um, I think the, uh, the main thing that you saw in second edition is a lot of things that you see in a miniature game that starts to mature is that a uh, certain stuff just kind of invalidated certain um, other things like, Hey, I could hire um, this model at six soul stones, but it's just strictly inferior to this other model I can hire in my same faction for the same amount of stones. Yeah, how, how about for you, Mark? Did you feel the same way? Yeah, very much so. It, like it, it was, it, it was starting. It was starting to get a bit of a bit of model bloat, a little bit of power creep. Um, I mean, you can go to the board. Yeah, I'm playing Rezzers. Yeah, hi, I'm playing Sandeep. Oh, I mean Arcanists. Um, right. It was. It, it, it there was those things. Uh, another interesting uh, mechanic or part that was that was actually added in second second edition was the introduction of an enforcer status. Because it used to be there was only minions, henchmen, and masters, um, and yeah. But there was some good things. Um, it, it's a shame that the campaign ability in Second Ed, the cam- shifting loyalties campaign, didn't really get as much steam as it could have. Yeah, let's talk about that real quick, Mark. So, what was shifting loyalties, and what was the campaign mo- uh, mode? Uh, so, the campaign mode essentially had um, it was uh, a, a way to essentially do a slow grow. 
league, for want of a better term, or a campaign story-driven narrative. Um, it had a whole heap of cards. Like there was a massive deck, the Shifting Loyalties deck. Um, and it was also the way that you could use the avatars, uh, which was a handful of models they had from first edition that were back in first edition. It was essentially, um, I think from the um, story, it was when the red cage came down um, in Kythera. Uh, it basically avatared everyone up and like Ramos became like a spider and Padita for some reason was riding like a Chimera lion thing. Um and yeah, it was a way to bring those models that people still have to this day that we can now use um, counts as on as emissaries in third ed. Um, but it was, it was a way to use a way to try and bring those models back without actually bringing avatars back into the game. Yeah, and I remember exploring shifting loyalties, Andrew, and 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 I thought it was interesting. And part of the reason I never ended up—I mean, I bought the book, but never really actually played in a shifting loyalties campaign—is. Um, I, I really enjoyed Malifaux as a competitive game. Um, in my group here in North Carolina, I never saw shifting loyalties catch on. Did you see it at all in your group, Andrew, where people were playing the campaign mode? Uh, yeah. So there was actually a, um, I forget the uh, what the campaign was called, but it was hosted across multiple uh, regions. And I think some of the guys in um, that part of the meta were also part of it, but it was uh, down uh, like through Florida and then up through uh, Georgia, North Carolina, and then uh, South Carolina. And I can't remember how far uh, all the geographic regions that participated in. Some people were playing across Vassal. But cool. I know uh, uh, locally, um, we had a pretty good time with it. Uh, I unfortunately was playing um, a master in it that didn't have an avatar, but so I had to just stick him on a 50 and say, well, uh, <laughs> this is my avatar. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I was there. Um, I don't, I can't remember. I, I think I was playing Malifaux for about a year and a half um, before we uh, had the the 3E leaks. Um, so let's take a break and let's talk about third edition. Um, we'll talk about uh, the unexpected transition that Weird went through for third edition um, and really kind of the bumpy road that they uh, had to travel uh, for that edition change. So, so we'll be right back. DZ Learguard here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, and we will see you there. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Hey, need to do some shout outs for some of our patrons. First off, a big thanks to our newest patrons, Nicholas Prinzing, Dearth8952, 
Sven and Mike Schmidt. Extra special shout out to our largest patrons. Nick Westbrook, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Stephen Morris, Sam Newman, James Hahn, Ambrose Ingram, Jeremy Peace, Corin Solez. Because of the nine of you, we're able to put out as much quality content as we can on a real regular basis. We appreciate it. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the US and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzoopsgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. So I'll never forget. Um, I had just finished a tournament. Um, it was at Atomic Empire over in Durham, uh, North Carolina. And uh, I remember. Uh, going out to my car and getting a text message from somebody in the uh, DC meta um, who I was in close contact with. And uh, it was a link. And uh, I clicked the link and it took me to a website uh, on weirds domain uh, that had everything about third edition. So told about uh, the masters, some of the changes that were coming and things like that. And I texted back, I'm like, like, when did this get announced? And the person that uh, sent it to me, so it hasn't been. So uh, evidently what apparently had happened is um, inadvertently weird had been working on uh, the third edition uh, for getting ready for the Gen Con announcement. Um, I believe is what had happened. And they'd start building some of the web pages and um, it had been made public and apparently somebody was scraping uh, for information and came across the unlinked uh, but public uh, pages. Um, as soon as Weird figured out that um, people were, were going to this page and finding this page, they, they locked up and brought it down. But at that point, the cat was out of the bag. And um, I don't know, uh, Andrew, I don't know if you remember, it was, I think it was maybe maybe a week where uh, Weird kind of didn't acknowledge what had happened. And then eventually they kind of said, do you, do you remember how that happened? Yeah, it was a, it was a really uh, bad PR time for Weird, where they were kind of just trying to pretend it didn't exist. Um, I think that was because it was uh, before GenCon, and they were trying to also promote uh, some new stuff for second edition yeah. um, that we would later find out would not be in the same factions they were advertised for uh, in uh, third edition. So um, there was a lot going on. Uh, eventually they did own up to it. And I think uh, they started up uh, in, uh, sending out information for playtesting um, and getting in as part of it because they knew they couldn't um, – control or what information was already out there. So they figured might as well start getting 
um, people to help make this thing ready to launch. Yeah, they couldn't unscramble that egg. And um, Mark, I don't know uh, how things went down there too, but another kind of casualty of this was the other side because what ended up happening at the same time is this kind of um, put a cast a shadow, I think, on on other side and kind of the rollout of the other side, uh, coupled with some of the issues that I think they were having on the delivery of the Kickstarter itself. Um, how did, how did Australia receive the the news of uh, third edition? Yeah, well, Australia, like Australia being the large country we are, we have very sporadic um, gaming groups. Like Melbourne had some podcasts and stuff and guys out there. I actually, for me, I remember um, I had just, the other side had just, the Kickstarter had just been funded. The models had just been sent out. um, And I was at my local game store. I'd just become a henchman as well. Um, and I was starting to develop some hype for the other side. I think I ended up with like six players. Um, and one of my good good buddies, Carl, uh, he he came to me and he's like, oh, did you see the thing about uh, Third Ed? And me being the henchman, I was like, well, I haven't heard anything about it. So I don't expect, I'd like, I actually didn't think it was real. I was like, yeah. I was like nah, someone's, pull, someone's pulling our leg here. Um, and we were playing the other side at the time. And um yeah, and he's like, and he's talking to me, talking to me about it, and I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about it, mate. And being a henchman, I'm, I've got access to the henchman forums. If I don't know about it, then it it it, it must be it could be a prank. Um, and then obviously, like I think it was a week or so later. Um, yeah, the third edition beta, and I just I didn't even buy into the beta, um, mainly because I was pretty uh, sold on the other side of that time. And I was trying to generate a bit of a community for that, but it was unfortunately a bit of a casualty, uh, especially for um, what is an, I think another excellent game. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a good game. It is a good game. And this wasn't the only uh, thing that I think uh, hampered, um, the other side from catching on there's a lot of other things, but we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, another thing that hurt um, is that, it was very hard to keep people excited about playing second edition when they knew third edition was coming. Uh, a lot of people were play testing it at the time. And we went through a, a bit of a dry spell, uh, close to a year in that transition where second edition was still the edition. Uh, third edition was being play tested. And a lot of scenes died. A lot of podcasts disappeared. Um, a lot of uh, metas died. We were lucky here in, in the Raleigh, North Carolina area that, you know, we kind of kept playing. Um, a lot of people play, were really excited and getting excited about third edition. But I know across the world, um, you know, it, it the the player base took a hit. Um, Andrew, what happened to the Malifaux community in your area as far as your meta is concerned in that, tra- in that desert period? So what happened was um, we all are on uh, the same Facebook uh, chat together. Um, I just got everybody into third edition beta. I was like, you guys are going to fill these NDAs out. And we're just, if we're not interested in second, we know what's coming around. Let's make this the best it can be. So um, I just kind of pulled everybody into that. Um, I I might be not remembering it quite entirely right. Chris Blue probably helped me out with getting everybody in on it. But uh, we pretty much had games every week, like, we always did. We just were uh, having to print out cards and right. uh, say, oh, no, change this week from last week. Yeah. Open beta, open beta test and closed beta tests are, are tough um, because things uh, by design are changing and they're changing frequently. Um, when did you, Mark, first play third edition? 
Uh, I did play a couple of games in the open beta test, I think, because we were playing Malifaux at the time. I think I played one or two beta test games of third ed, but then I... I basically said I, I said to my mate said look I did I did the open beta for for wave one and wave two of second ed I don't I, I just I, I just didn't have the time energy and also being um, in the military I actually ended up going overseas um, to really play it uh, much of the uh, beta test so instead I, um, I I was playing the other side but then actually now that I think about it that's not entirely correct but while I was overseas. Um, I had a Wi-Fi connection. I had my computer with me, and I was actually playing some um, some of the beta test with um, some of the guys when the the final rules were were done, but they were still in beta format. Uh, I was playing via Vassal with some of the people you had on uh, a while ago for uh, being Dan Brown and Steve Johnson. I was yeah. playing via I was playing via Vassal while I was sitting in the sitting in the Middle East somewhere. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, I was playing. I was playing Vassal games with them. It was, it was, um, and it was a good time. Very, very cool. So Andrew, once, um, third edition gets released, um, and, uh, I was one of the first fanboys that said, you know, I think I had two games a third and I just knew immediately that this was a better game. Um, this was a better game than second. And that was, it was good that we went through the Rocky road. What were some of your first impressions, um, about third edition? So some of my first impressions were, uh, I'm going to, are you guys familiar with Dungeons and Dragons? If I use an analogy for oh, that. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. So I think third edition in a lot of ways is like five. And then um, going back to the earlier edition and first edition, because they, a lot of the mechanics with how some of the masters work are callbacks to when they had a little bit more like counters and tokens and things in first edition. So it's, it's for that part. It's a bit nostalgic for me to see them um, revive that. I'm glad they didn't bring back things like, uh, depending on your base size, was how many uh, corpse or scrap counters you dropped. But uh, um, overall, I thought that was a really uh, interesting place to mine for ideas and expand ending. So if you were, if you were, let's say that someone were to come up to you and uh, they played second edition, but they haven't looked at third, what, what would be your elevator pitch to them? That would, that would, that, what would you tell them is why they need to, to give third edition a try? I, I don't know if I'm ready to answer that question. Okay. Right well, how about you, Mark? Uh, um, what did you, what did you think? Um, what do you think is kind of the elevator pitch on why third um, is something that a second edition player really should revisit? Uh, I would say the main things are that it still has the same feel. It doesn't have the the upgrade um, the upgrade quicksand essentially of nice. Like, in, instead of having the upgrade quicksand, which we all knew was happening in second ed, where you had like you'd have all your cards and then you have all your upgrades putting on top. Instead, it's all on one card. The cards are bigger um, and the rules are a lot more universal now that has made it streamlined but still has that tactical depth andrew do you miss the upgrades uh, on the masters just a a little bit only because at the end from uh, book five there's a few upgrades i wanted to try on some masters that i never got to um if we're going back to the elevator pitch i would just say that um it there's less models in this version of the game that are worse because of uh, keywords and um, the 
differences in price changes between it actually are a pretty meaningful for playing something more thematic than just playing some soup of the best stuff of your faction. Yeah, it's um I think we go back to some of the warts of second edition. I think one of the warts that I noticed is you everybody had kind of their all-star list, right? So if you're playing Rezzers, you could name four models that were guaranteed to be in the crew. Uh if you were playing uh against um uh, Sandeep, I mean Arcanists in Second Edition. You could you could tell you you already knew what the crew was, uh, you know, and and it was interesting. Like Mark, how, what did you think about keywords? And when you first when you first realized what the keyword system was, because that's new for Third Edition. I loved it. I thought it was great. It brought in a bit more a bit more theme. And now, like a lot of the time, even. I sit there and I've had a lot of time off recently and with COVID, I've been playing a lot on Vassal. So I actually get a lot, I get a good feel of basically metas all over the world because I play with, I've got a lot of good mates who are in the UK, a lot of good mates in the US, also guys in Germany, Poland that I play against fairly regularly. Um, And it doesn't matter what master you, you announce. Like, yeah, there's still some that like, there's the, there's like, there's a Raider all-star list, that um, people can play, but if you're playing, um, as soon as someone announces a master, you know the kinds of things that are going to be in there based off the keyword, yep. not, okay, they're just playing a master plus uh, five or six other models that they know are, are good. All right, so I've got a, I've got a, uh, a gotcha question. Are you ready, Mark? Sure. I want you to rank the countries. What country, the what country, yeah, I want to know what what country has the strongest players, the second strongest players. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's honestly it's a tough call between uh, between the the US and the UK. Um, each of them have some uh, some really strong players in there. Um, in the US, there's I'll give a shout out now to Andre Demings. That Texas meta, holy crap, are they aggressive? Yeah, and they are. You've got to know you've got to you've got to know how to play against an aggressive crew that's in your face. Although I almost got him with Jack Daw the other day. Nice. Um, uh, well, what, you know what's but, the worst part about the Texas meta? Um, I'll tell you right now. One, well, actually, there's a lot of problems. There's, I'm going to list <laughs> them all. Are you ready? So, first problem is is they definitely have a very distinct style of play. Um, and it, it is ultra aggressive and um, because they play so often um, there's become a, a bit of a homogenous style um, uh, in, in the Texas meta. Um, so that's problem. Number one, problem number two is they're good at the game. Uh, so it's, it's one <laughs> thing to have a certain style. Um, it's another thing to be effective in that style. Uh, the third thing, and probably the thing that makes me the angriest about the Texas meta is there are a bunch of really good guys so it's really tough to, to hate him. Like, like Andre is, is a, just a bitch to play against because he's really, really good at the game. And he's such a nice guy during the whole process. You're probably like, want to catch a beer with him afterwards when you really should just be angry at the fact that he just, you know, made an idiot out of you on the table. Um, so that's my take on the Texas meta, <laughs> um, good, a really good group of guys. And it's very interesting how they've kind of, uh, kind of, my way of getting around them is I drink scotch while playing Vassal. Um, <laughs> nice. But, <laughs> well, you know what they remind me of, though, is 
they, they remind me of Poland. Um, so th- Poland really had kind of gotten that that same reputation in second edition. Um, that Polish meta was a very aggressive meta, um, and they were they were going up uh, to the UK and they were doing some damage up there, and they were feared um, when you talked about a lot of the international play. Uh, you mentioned Mark that you've been playing people in Poland. Is uh, just uh, I have yet to really get anybody from Poland on the show yet. Um, are they pretty active and uh, enjoying the game? From what you can tell. Uh, they seem to be Poland, and also I'd say just to add on the Texas meta, remind me also of from second ed the flipping weirds. Um, yeah, they they had a same same notoriety for they play against each other two three times a, a week, and because they're all good, they have to get better to be able to play the game. Um, and it happens everywhere, and that's like now I play against because I yes. play. Or across the world, I play. I now play with with my mates, and a lot of the time they're like, "Oh, how do we do this?" And the only problem that I have is that it's now come down to me when I log on to Vassal and I'm going to play someone. I'm like, "Okay, pick a number between one and eight, and they pick that number, and that's the faction I go with. I'm like, "Cool, what am I going to try this time?" <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. No, it. Um, I see. Actually, that's something you talk about the UK. Um, at the same, I can say a lot of the same things about um, the flipping weirds. A bunch of really good guys that are also really good at the game. Um, you know, uh, one of the nicest people in Malifaux, uh, James Doxy, um, incredibly effective player, and uh, one of the nicest people you'll meet. I, I need to find somebody who's good at the game who's a jerk. Um, so I, I basically, we need to we need to get the guys in DC playing again because <laughs> all of them were really good at the game and they were jerks at the same time too. Um, I, I hear Jamie Varney. I hear Jamie Varney's actually a bit of a jerk. Uh, I, you know, I, I've heard that, but I've yet to encounter it. Um, I, from my understanding, um, there's there's uh, if you take out his master by turn two, he's a jerk. But uh, otherwise, he's super nice if he's winning. That's what I hear. <laughs> Everyone's nice if they're winning. That's right. That's right. Um, so, Andrew, um, as we kind of wrap things up, um, what is your overall feeling now that we're in third edition? You know, we've got a good year, year and a half of playing third edition under our belts. Um, you know, it, we're starting to get our reps in. How are you feeling about the game right now? Uh, I'm feeling pre- as a game, it is excellent. I, I'm really excited to see what the League of Explorers brings as the extra new faction. Um, got to get that Malasaurus Rex at some point. And, uh, but um, I think the the biggest issue right now is still overcoming that uh, kind of global pandemic that we're sort of yeah. in at the moment. And um, because you, you lose some of the uh, magic of playing a game when you have to do it uh, remotely. I miss the monthly tournaments here in North Carolina. I miss hopping in the car and driving two hours down to Charlotte or two hours out to the, to the beach and, you know, having big tournaments at atomic empire and Durham and having everybody in North Carolina make the trip up and having 20, 25 people playing in a three rounder. I do miss that a lot. How about you, Mark? What are your feelings about where we are right now? Uh, I think third ed is it's, it's in a really good state. Um, it's pro- that that our keyword system is promoting a lot of theme in the way people play things. Um, I've been I hosted uh, essentially a garage garage foe the other a couple of weeks ago because um, our COVID restrictions. I'm in in Queensland and Australia. Our COVID restrictions are actually uh, have eased quite a lot. That's um, great. So I, I can I can and I can host. Uh, I've got enough uh, terrain and stuff to host three four tables. At my place, um, I ran a tournament last year for Third Ed, um, and everyone who went past, they're like, they were like, "Oh, 
it was part of a bigger um, defense force uh, convention and everyone was like, oh, this is Malifaux third ed. Oh, that's what the cards look like. Oh, that's actually really good. Um, nice. And it, I, I think there is good things to come. Uh, we just have to sort of wait and see what's going to happen. There's also, in case you didn't know, there's a they're revising uh, the henchman program uh, within Weird. They've basically taken away what the henchman program was. They're revisiting it. Um, and I think hopefully that will breathe some new life into the game along with uh, everything they announced from Gen Con with the other side and new models that will be adaptable to third ed um, and the Explorer Society to come. Yeah, I'll tell you what, one of the big announcements that I thought um, uh, was a big deal um, was the fact that some of these new other side boxes are going to be come with uh, Malifaux cards. Um, yep. And I really do. I really um, I'm rooting for the other side and I'm hoping this will will maybe tempt some people to give it a try. I have yet to talk to somebody who plays the other side that does not make a, a point to tell me this is a really, really good game. And I've talked to people that like it better than Malifaux um, that there's, that there's some, that it's different enough and it feels different enough that um, if they're given the choice of playing a game of the other side or Malifaux, they'll choose the other side. Um, it doesn't mean they don't love Malifaux, but it just, it speaks to how good the game is. And I hope that um, I hope that this kind of strategy to tempt more Malifaux players, because I'm going to buy that box with um, the new Karai um uh, box the, for the other side. I'm buying it because that Karai sculpt is amazing, and that that Akiro sculpt is incredible. Um, and I'm going to be sitting there with other side models and some other side uh, cards. So who knows what could happen? The interesting thing, I think, um, they have like weird have hinted at uh, in the future that they'd be doing um, alternate uh, master cards. And I'm wondering if the ace up the sleeve may be that those cards that come in that other side box might be alternates for Sonya or Kirai. That, that, that could I had not thought about that. I had not thought yep. about that. That's very interesting. Um, so, Mark, uh, is there any plugs or shout-outs you want to give before we wrap up? Um, I'll just give a shout-out to all my uh, local Brisbane guys. They all know I was going to be on here. Um, and also, shout-out to the the guys down south. Hopefully, their Malifaux is starting to get better. And obviously, all my usual opponents – uh, from from Vassal Wilson and Andre and Reese, I'll see us on Vassal. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good group of guys, man. And that that steel sharpening steel, Mark. That's a that's a strong set of opponents to be playing on a regular basis. Reese is an excellent player. How about you, Andrew? Any shout outs or plugs? Uh, I'd like to just shout out first to the North Carolina Meta as a whole, and then a special shout out, of course, to all the guys in the Charlotte Meta. We thank you for. Uh, putting up with me sometimes as, uh, with my uh, less than stellar hobby habits. Um, <laughs> You're a good dude, Andrew. <laughs> we just got to get you playing more Malifaux. Uh, and of course, I'm going to throw one extra special shout out to the uh, miniature model dealer that helped get me into this game in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Um, we like to call it plastic crack dealers. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, everyone's it was got metal one. at the time. So I, I guess. <laughs> was... um, before we wrap up though, just real quick, Andrew, have you explored that uh, new edition of uh, infinity? I keep hearing about. Um, I, so for infinity uh, second into third, I kind of um, uh, avoided that most entirely. Um, mostly because I would remember stuff from second edition that was entirely wrong yeah. in third. 
Um, so I am excited for uh, out of the two versions that they're doing, the uh, slightly simpler one that they're going to do. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that is because there's a lot of cool models and I, I, I love the game and the flavor. Yep. Uh, but I don't love the amount of work I have to put into the game to be. And that, that's uh, what it is with Infinity. Yeah, there, I mean, there's some great concepts in it. The 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 world is fascinating. Uh, the world around it's really interesting. There's some really neat mechanics and moments that happen in Infinity game. I just um, it just like I think you said it perfectly, Andrew. It just takes too much work to play. Um, it's just it's just too much. So I'd be very interested. I forget, forget what it's called, Code Red or Code something or whatever. Uh, that that more simplified version. I'll be very anxious to see it. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate it, um, uh, especially to you, Mark. That you have uh you're the one that came up with the idea of this pod um and i appreciate you reaching out to me and uh and selling me on it um and andrew i appreciate you uh, jumping on um as i went out and hunted for people that uh uh, had played all the editions and uh, for those of you that stuck around to the end thanks for listening take care be sure to follow us on facebook twitter youtube and twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right, we're doing good, guys. We're right at an hour. We'll finish up on third. This will be good. Yeah, that was um, that was actually a pretty smooth sort of thing, uh, moving slice through. That was yeah, that was good. Yep, yep. No, we're doing exactly what I wanted to do. Is just kind of give people a feel of the evolution. So this is good. Um, yeah. I'll bring I'll bring us back, and I'm going to kind of start off with um the leak. Um, and then Andrew, I'll probably start start with you as far as what your feelings were when you kind of heard what was happening. Uh, does that sound good? Sure thing. All right. Well, we just lost a break, which is good. <laughs> it was just too smooth. Yeah. It was a smooth transition, so it worked perfect. Mm, yeah, I, I think it was a good point that yeah, one point five wasn't. It, it was more. It was. It was really more like an errata. Yeah, um, no. and coming together and clean up of the rules. The yeah. one thing we didn't touch on is we didn't we didn't cover our avatars from first ed. Oh, we you know let's we'll, we'll let's bring them up in two, and we can we give a throwback that they were there was something that came over from one. Um, so we can um, we can bring that up. Go well, ahead. They, they didn't come out in two. Right, they came out in one. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but wasn't there something a big change in them in two or two? They were upgrades for the campaign. Got so it. So yeah, you could right. use them yeah. for models and stuff. And then the campaign's pretty fun. Um, having yeah. gone through, I think it was the Grand. Uh, I don't remember the second G, what it was called, but uh, shifting, shifting was, loyalties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's. That's the first time they introduced the campaign rules. That'll give us a chance to talk about the avatars, and then we can throw back to what they were in first. Um, so it'll be easy for us to bring that up. Uh, yep. w- one other thing, I just wanted to let you know, Craig. It probably won't have a good space on the show, but uh, alpha striking was a lot more uh, prevalent in uh, first edition. Yeah, well, yes. well, yeah, I won't, won't yep. worry about that. It doesn't surprise me. That's almost every first edition of a game turns into an alpha yep. strike game anyway. All right, so I'll bring us back. All right, that was good, gentlemen. All right. So, this is, I, I should know this and I don't. Um, first edition wasn't a Kickstarter or anything like that, right? It was just a standard no. release. No, I, I, no one, of the, one of the notes I've got here is Weird itself, they were a miniature company just making random miniatures. Um, and then they okay. basically, they needed a way to, they sort of went, oh, look, we make a game out of this. And that's how Malifaux kind of developed was the miniatures first and then the game sort of released and yeah gotcha that's that's kind of what I understood alright I might start with you Mark and then we'll bounce to you Andrew does that sound good? Sure. sounds good I was just going to add um, Weird Miniatures is like a hole on their site um, originally started as like a, a hobby painting site where they would yeah, do yeah. content no shit. and things oh very so, interesting um, yeah and then it released I want to say Gen Con 2009 uh, it's in the first Weird Chronicles Excellent. Mm. All right, I'll bring us back. Craig here on the third floor. My guests today are Andrew. Oh, Andrew, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Oh, it's uh, Lubick. Just pretend I it was H- Lubick. H is a K. Yeah, I thought it was Lubick, but right I, <laughs> if I was going to mess it up, I'd mess it up then. No, right, I let's mean, try it again. The, uh, Ready? Craig here on the third floor. My guest. And today we're going to discuss the history of tabletop gaming Malifaux. God, I fucked that up. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.